This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Another day, another show to give you the tools you need to grow a healthier, happier life. Good morning and uh, welcome to the program. Today we got a very uh, interesting topic we're going to be getting into a little bit later. Um, desalinization. It sounds like a really weird word, but it seems like if we have a drought in California, for example, or just the West Coast, there's this weird thing called the Pacific Ocean. Couldn't you just start getting some water from the ocean, for heaven's sakes? Are we not smart enough to take the salt out of the water and then use the water? Come on, we can get to the moon, can't we? We'll be talking about the western drought and some of the solutions for finding water. Desalinization is one of them. It's not a very productive—I mean, it's not a very uh, affordable way, necessarily, to get the water and— We'll be getting into that a little bit later, later with Tony Arnold. He's going to be joining us. He's a professor of law at the University of Louisville and also the affiliated professor of urban planning. He's an expert in the field. He'll be giving us his insights. We also, uh, throughout the day, we're going to be talking about uh, with Josh Levs, who is a CNN uh, reporter, and he wrote the book All In, How Our Work First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses and how we can fix it. Josh Levs wanted paternity leave when he when he and his wife had their first baby, and, uh, you know, he struggled getting it with his employer. And it ended up causing a lawsuit. And so he's going to be talking about paternity leave and, and the importance of that and the impact that can have on businesses and just really the whole work environment that is so forced, that forces so many of us to just constantly be working, even at the expense of families. We'll be talking with him, and then a little bit later in the show, in hour number three of the program, man, we've got a great one. We're going to be getting into uh, the family dinner and some of the great rituals and routines and what happens when and, and how we can strengthen our families through some, through some of these routines and rituals like family dinner and uh, family time. You know, it's fun. Nowadays, with my kids, I don't even, you know, you don't even see them in the summer, they're all at different locations. They're all with different friends. So we're supposed to sit down and have a family dinner? Come on, it's summer. That's what barbecues are for, right? The family barbecue. Nothing brings family together better than a barbecue. Well, day in, day out, uh, you ought to be having similar experiences just whenever you can. We'll be getting into that throughout the program. But before we get to all of these great topics, let's first uh, go to the great, uh, the great family guru, I was wondering where you were going with that. (laughs) That's so rude. Kathy Aiken is going to bring us our headlines. Good morning, Matt. An African-American church in South Carolina that was burned down by the Ku Klux Klan 20 years ago caught fire again last night. The Mount Zion AME Church in Greeleyville began burning around 8.30 p.m. No one was believed to be inside at the time. Authorities say it's too early to tell if it was arson. Much of the building was destroyed. 
David Sweat, who along with Richard Matt escaped from a New York prison, said they began their plot in January. The two men who escaped on June 6th did a dry run the night before they got free. Matt was shot and killed last Friday, while Sweat remains in a hospital recovering from two gunshot wounds. The New York State Department of Corrections has put several prison executives, including the superintendent, on leave as they investigate the facility. New Jersey Governor Chris Christie made it official yesterday. America is tired of hand-wringing and indecisiveness and weakness in the Oval Office. We need to have strength and decision-making and authority back in the Oval Office. And that is why today I am proud to announce my candidacy for the Republican nomination for President of the United States of America. Christie made that announcement at Livingston High School, where he once attended. The, he becomes the 14th GOP contender. Christie said both parties have failed the country and that he's out to change the world. His slogan? telling it like it is. After Donald Trump's controversial remarks about Mexican immigrants, Mexico announced it won't be sending a contestant to the Miss Universe pageant this next time. Trump owns part of the event. This after Univision announced it won't air the Miss USA pageant this month and the Miss Universe pageant in January. Yesterday, Trump filed a $500 million lawsuit against Univision in response to that decision. The National Safety Council is asking drivers to be vigilant this 4th of July weekend. On average, there are 37% more highway fatalities during this holiday than any other day in July. That's due to higher levels of traffic and more partying. It's estimated more than 400 people will be killed on the road during the long Independence Day weekend. And if true, that would be the most for a 4th of July holiday since 2008. And the U.S. women's soccer team shut out top-ranked Germany last night to nil in the World Cup semis. That puts the U.S. one win away from their third cup title. Carly Lloyd put the U.S. on the board with the penalty kick in the sixth. 69th minute, then Lloyd set up Kelly O'Hara with a late goal to seal the victory. Defensively, Hope Solo had her fifth shutout, and the U.S. will face tonight's winner between Japan and England on Sunday for the World Cup crown. Did you watch it last night? You know, I didn't. I was teaching a class, oh, uh, sorry, and dang. I was stuck till 10. So, Oh, so good. But they, so they won 2-0? 2-0. Holy cow. Yeah, it was great. It's very exciting. It's, it was kind of pitched. Germany was the big offensive yeah. threat. The U.S., the big defensive you defense know, team wins. Of the, yeah, defense wins championships, and they played great. It was so fun to watch. How fun. Um, I mean, this is a huge deal. This is the World Cup. It's the World Cup. You know, the thing I love, obviously, being female, is yeah. that it really brings out the young girls yeah. getting excited about sports. And these are there. You know, there's so few... Uh, sports role models for women. Yeah, right. So for these young girls, it's so great that they have well, these, these this girls to look up to. This is the World Cup. Big time. And, again, they're still not even getting their due. Right. <laughs> because it, this is the biggest event in the world, right? Soccer is the biggest sport in the world, yeah. And yet, it so, um, but I guess, yeah, everyone's like, You don't okay, really hear about it until, Cup. you know, yeah. they get close, and now it's, I think it's going to be huge. Sunday so who, night who is going to be huge. They play the winner between Japan and England. Japan, oh, we can take Japan it. beat the U.S. four years ago in the final, so... I, you know, in a way, I think they'd probably want to play them. To Bring on them. Japan. Yeah. 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 We already had a war with England. <laughs> we don't need another war. We don't need another one. Yeah. With England. Yeah. How interesting is that? And then um, go back to the churches. All of these black churches are being They're burned. They're burned down, yeah. I mean, I think there's like seven of them or something. It's what, a big number. It's since, se- seven since the shooting. The shooting in Charleston. Something's going on. Something's going on. The one last night, they, you know, like I said, they don't know if it was arson because there were lots of thunderstorms yeah. in the area, but it's still, it's still fishy. Something's fishy there. Something's fishy. Speaking of fishy, 
Uh, politics. <laughs> Donald Trump just keeps digging deeper in. He's getting in trouble. Hey, he's suing everybody, you know? Why not? Yeah. Why not? I'm sure he gets sued, so I'm suing you back. You know, I, I think that he and Chris Christie, they're just going to bring uh, something fun to yeah. this presidential well, they race. They both speak their minds. They speak their minds. Where other people, they're so measured. It's like, just tell the truth. Just say They're both from there. Jersey. Whether you like it or not, you know? Well, in fact, that's what you're going to get. Some plain, straight talk, supposedly. Right. right. But... I don't know. And Christie's going to change the world, so there you go. Well, for sure. For sure. He needs to start with the drought in the West. I don't know if you've heard, but it's pretty bad. Big time. Yeah. According to um, Smithsonian.com, the Western U.S. could soon face the worst mega drought in a millennium. Wow. In fact, climate models predict that the region will be drier than the droughts that likely caused ancient Native Americans to abandon their Pueblo cities. Well, look at it here. I mean, in Utah, look at the temperatures, how high, and, and the water. Just, it's, it's very hey, scary. Hey, little, little note for you yeah? and all the listeners. Don't ever leave a 12-pack of beverages Uh-oh. in your car when it's 105. Did they explode? Yeah. They did? Not all of them. <laughs> One's enough. Just about three of them. Oh, really? It was bad. Did you clean it up? It was like the 24th of July. Actually, no, I didn't even know it happened, and the car was so hot, it cleaned itself up. <laughs> you know, better that than milk, because if they oh, put milk in the imagine? hot, that would really smell. That's so, bad. Yeah. yeah. That's so bad. it's all good. It's all good. I've got a bunch of cans that are, like, totally deformed, though. Whatever. It's just money. Yeah, it's just money. It's no just money. Deal. And it's just a sticky car. No it's big just deal. just a sticky mess. <laughs> anyway, thanks, Kathy. Well done. Uh, when we talk about this drought, it's a big deal. And again, think of this. Many moons ago, this drove Native Americans out of their Pueblo cities, a, dr- a severe drought did. And here we sit. Is it going to drive everybody in California out of their cities? What are we supposed to do? How do we handle the drought? But also, are there new ways to create or to actually uh, desalinate water, for example? Is that – are we going to use technology to help us manage through the drought? And, uh, and just what are the solutions? How do you manage it? We've got a great guest joining us. Tony Arnold will be with us in just a minute on the phone. He, again, is a professor of law at the University of Louisville, but he's an affiliated professor of urban planning and the Bowl Chair in Property and Land Use. He's going to be – talking to us about land use and uh, what's going on with this upcoming drought. What are some things we should be watching out for? And uh, how do you really control it? You know, a drought in one state like California, for example, could impact everyone upstream. We'll be talking about it up next with Tony Arnold right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Townsend Show. Hey, uh, you've all heard about the drought that is, uh, I guess, headed for the western U.S. And, you know, it's it's a big deal when you think about it. It, it. The drought historically took out civilizations. It took out a lot of uh, Native American um, Pueblo cities and it's it's a many are saying you know this is the mega drought that could come and 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 have a similar type of impact on certain um, populations. So when we talk about this and we look at 
the potential of drought. And it, a lot of it could be, you know, about the drought or the lack of rainfall. Some of it could just be also how we manage our water supply. So joining us today is Tony Arnold. We wanted to pick his brain about, you know, just ma- water management and 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 how we handle this upcoming problem. He is a professor of law at the University of Louisville, affiliated professor of urban planning. He's the Bowl Chair in Property and Land Use and the Chair of the Center for Land Use and Environmental Responsibility. Tony Arnold, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show, my friend. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about water. It's it's an interesting thing. We don't normally think of water until we need it. It's we just kind of hide away, and then all of a sudden, whoa, where's the water coming from? Is this is the problem uh, is the problem a people problem, or is it just a a, a lack of moisture problem? Uh, it's both, uh, and uh, you know, it's interesting. The, the California uh, drought um, and sort of drought in the West generally have some things in common, and they have some differences. Huh. Uh, as well. So the California drought, um, the, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, NOAA as they're known, um, just came out with a report by a climate scientist um, uh, indicating that uh, they've concluded that this is actually a natural drought. It's part of the, the natural cycles in California of uh, you know, extremely dry years uh, followed by extremely wet years. Um, and so the problem there is really just um, that California hasn't uh, developed a water management system, um, you know, and in a way of living in that kind of environment that is well adapted to those kinds of cycles. Because, you know, in the state of California, for our perspective, it's it's been around for a while, but from the standpoint of uh, climate cycles, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's pretty, pretty new recent ph- phenomenon. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, so, so part of what's happened, you know, of course, is a problem in the West generally, which is that we've had a lot of development, uh, a lot of agriculture, um, a lot of sort of re-engineering of waterways in ways that just haven't um, been well suited for the, for nature's carrying capacities, for the natural systems of, of climate and water flows. And so we're really putting um, a lot of stressors on our water systems and aren't sort of well adapted for these kinds of extreme events. But, you know, some of the, the trends in the West more, more generally are uh, slower, but they're more deep and structural and, and systemic. And uh, that poses even you know, even more serious problems because, uh, you know, eventually with California, they'll have some wet years. It'll take a few years for them to replenish their water supply. Uh, but, you know, they, they're not going to, it seems unlikely, but they're going to uh, remain in extreme or exceptional drought um, mm. endlessly. Well, I mean, it's, so some of this is, I guess, because there are people, I'm assuming, that are paid to, to manage these systems and these structures more effectively, aren't they? I mean, I mean, Utah. I mean, not Utah, but California has enormous population, enormous demand, and uh, you know, might even be known at times to not manage all of its systems and infrastructures, you know, effectively per se, just with that much growth and demand. 
is I mean somebody. I guess you can't. You, you, I mean, water's not coming. If water's not coming, then and you haven't planned, it's you know, it's kind of too late. There's not the squirrel has to have enough you know food saved away for the winter. Um, is it something you can actually catch up on, or do they just? Does everybody just kind of look upstream, and does everybody upstream then have an obligation to take care of everybody downstream? Yeah. So, so the 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 um, sort of short term, uh, you know, fixes are difficult to, to you know to really pull off in the short term, um, in part just because of of the way institutions resist change. So there are a lot of really smart folks doing uh, coming up with a lot of really great ideas out in California, but you know, it's uh, the institutions resist change are. Uh, laws, water laws, uh, uh, tend to uh, protect the existing ways of allocating and managing water that aren't working so well. Yeah. Um, and then it's also a people problem. Uh, people uh, are in denial uh, about the situation. Uh, you see lots and lots of people. Um, and I think in Long Beach, the, the figure was 98% of the population. They're voluntarily reducing their water, being good stewards, doing the right thing. But it's, you know, it's that 2% uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, where people say, well, we're not going to comply. And actually, I think... Uh, we saw with we're seeing with some of the agricultural uh, irrigators um, that you know the the sort of non-compliance is maybe even larger uh, percentage than two, and so you know people get frustrated uh, by the the people who aren't uh, complying, uh, the people who don't want to comply, bring lawsuits challenging the rules, challenging the government's authority to impose them. Um, Saying, well, you know, even if the rules are are fine, you are applying them the wrong way to me. I'm in some sort of different category. Yeah, we're different. Treated differently. Yeah, it, it's and interesting. So, you know, so for example, the city of Riverside is suing the state over its authority to uh, 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 impose water restriction. Uh, a number of uh, farmers and irrigators are uh, also challenging. Uh, the cutbacks in water rights in courts. And, you know, the reality is the, the legal system um, isn't nearly as flexible and adaptive as it, as it needs to be. Um, and the, the other problem is people just really aren't sharing equally and seeing this as a, a problem that we all have to work together to, to solve. Yeah, it's the community. It's, it's interesting. It, I mean, as you verge on a problem or a major, you know, calamity or disaster or whatever this could become sometime if this continued for a long period of time, you know, community will eventually be created <laughs> after right. after the beatdown and the lawsuits uh, and the impasse. I mean, there's going to be a time where, you know, we're going to we'll come together one way or another. And I guess and what we can talk about it after the break, but really this is um this is this is something that happens regularly i mean not regularly but it happens to every part of the country in one way or another you know whether it was a hurricane and that demanded an entire restructuring of you know you know louisiana and how we made decisions there or whether it was the um like a natural disaster tornadoes in the midwest I guess 
there's really only so much planning you can do, and you can only hope that governments take the lead. But that usually doesn't seem to happen. Right. I, I, mean, I think we see some examples where it does happen, um, and there's there's some ideas out. Uh, there's some actual practices that are used. Uh, uh, um, one is called adaptive planning, and that's about the planning, but planning to be more flexible for disasters and changes and you know, sort of sudden unexpected disturbances, like, for example, drought being the new normal. Yeah. in the West, so that kind of thing. Um, another is adaptive management, so that's really kind of about how you go about managing specific resources, so like you know, maybe managing uh, the dams or the, the water flows or whatever. Um, but there's also this concept called adaptive governance, which is about uh, you know, creating the right kinds of conditions where uh, governance, governance can adapt um, to these changes. And so I, I think there's definitely a fair amount of that happening yeah. in California. And uh, like you said, I mean, there's going to be a certain amount of pushback that that people give, and, and then we'll have to kind of see how it, it sorts itself out. Um, but, um, yeah, I do think there's, there's the possibility for us to think about resilience um, and the resilience of our communities, not in just resisting change, or bouncing back from a disaster, but actually adapting and uh, you know transforming uh, ourselves. But change is scary for people. Oh, yeah. People like the like the certainty of the way things have always uh, been. Um, so you know, maybe at some point with you we can talk a little bit about the role that hope plays in this because you know while I'm a somebody who studies law and uh, policy and and. Uh, governance structures, uh, there's actually a really pretty significant role for uh, for the idea of hope. Yeah, I love that. In fact, let's take a break. We're talking with Tony Arnold, who's a professor of law at the University of Louisville, also uh, an affiliated professor of urban planning. And let's do that. Let's talk about kind of overall what does the what does it look like for the West as far as the the, the drought is concerned. And the role of hope in all of this, I mean, the, the benefit of having issues like this happen, the droughts and, and problems like this, is it gives us an opportunity to learn to change, to grow, and to become adaptive and to tighten your systems and, and to learn. There is hope there. So we'll be talking more about this, uh, the whole drought, Western drought, and its impact, again, after the break right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Let it rain. You know what? If it's not going to rain, then you better let love rain down. Because we're going to need it. We're going to need some love to get through this. We're talking about uh, the the drought and the Western, you know, impact and and uh, of the drought or potential. I mean, some states. I'm, I guess I don't know if they're all in drought. We're talking with Tony Arnold, professor of law at University of Louisville, affiliated professor of urban planning, and he's here today to teach us about. Uh, as an expert in land use, about water resources, environmental conservation, 
And we're going to get into the hope, uh, hopefully, uh, around what's going on with the water situation in the western United States. Tony Arnold, welcome back to the show, my friend. Thanks. Hey, uh, you is this is this is drought the new normal for the West? Um, it is. It looks like you know climate change uh, or climate patterns. Um, I mean, it's really, it really depends on kind of what you want to call it. Whether you want to call it climate change, whether you want to call it uh, sort of um, unprecedented and sustained drought, uh, whether you want to call it um, uh, sort of uh, unexpected risk. Mm. Water security. There's lots of different terms. We, you know, it doesn't have to sort of get derailed by uh, political arguments over the term climate change. But, but the reality that that most uh, folks in the West are are dealing with is that. Um, you know, it, hotter and drier um, is the new normal. Um, you know, less uh, snowpack, uh, less uh, melt from the, the snow, um, oftentimes earlier and faster snow melt. Um, so that is a, uh, it, it would appear uh, from whatever, what data we have now and so forth that that's uh, sort of a long-term change in the West. Um, um, and it's, Probably, I mean, there's going to be pockets where it's it's not, uh, you know, the, the dynamics are going to be a little bit different. But that's sort of the general trend. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's going to create some real challenges for us in terms of um, water management and water conservation and, and how we work together to, to solve uh, water problems. Because it's, it's, it's one thing to um, have enough water for the population to live. It's another thing to have enough water for your landscaping. It's another to have enough for recreational use. I mean, there's so many uses of water that it seems to also kind of cross, and you've got so many other issues. I mean, if you, if those that don't live in the West, water and water rights have always been the cause of wars and contention, um, especially in the West. And so it seems like uh, it's, it's, a, it's a problem if this is going to be kind of a, the new normal. It's a problem that all of the West would need to face. Um, and somehow, which I think might be a really interesting opportunity to create some some strong thinking between, you know, all of the states. But it also seems like there's so many different contingent or so many different groups that have to be a part of making these decisions work. Right. There is a lot of tension between sort of different um, ideas about what's the best water use. And the, the reality is that, that all of the demands for water have um, – uh, either grown in absolute numbers or at least the conflicts uh, between them have grown. So, you know, we have a, a lot of urban development and urban growth in the West in an area that really wasn't meant to sustain the size of population that lives there now. There's just not, not enough, you know, sort of water naturally uh, for that. Mm. And then we've got... Um, Agriculture and agriculture has actually made some really significant improvements in efficiencies and conservation, but there are a lot of legal barriers to that, a lot of disincentives to do that, and we're quite frankly growing a lot of sort of water thirsty crops um, and uh, commodities and so forth in dry places. Um, 
Another big one is um, environmentalist and recreational uh, demand. So we, um, you know, as as streams and rivers became dewatered, uh, people were saying, well, look, you know, the, now we have um, fish going extinct or, you know, our fisheries aren't working well or we don't have enough water to, to raft down the river. And so there are, uh, you know, those are significant demand and, you know, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, we basically have a lot of demands on a landscape and a, a hydrological system in the West that really can't sustain all of those demands being met. And so we're going to have to figure out how to work together to manage it better, to achieve trade-offs, to, to make some tough choices. Mm. And, and and make the tough choices and get everybody on board, <laughs> right? right? Which seems yeah, like right. that almost just seems like two totally different worlds. And um, like, for example, there's an example going on right now about desalinization plants in California so that they can now start pulling some water from the Pacific Ocean. And in these plants, there's a billion-dollar plant, I believe, going in San Diego mm-hmm. that uh, – you know, it's the biggest desalination plant in the country. It's a beautiful idea, a billion bucks, and it's going to end up producing about 7% of San Diego County's water. Now, Santa Barbara had a similar plant they built in the 1990s drought that they haven't used since the 1990s drought, and now they got to bring that back on. But then that brings up a bunch of environmental issues, and are you going to harm the ecosystem? It's it's these are complicated issues, but you say um, there's hope. There's hope. So this the trial of the drought is also bringing hope, yet major contention. Help us understand where the hope comes from when we also have all the tension. Right. So so hope. What we know about sort of the psychology of hope is is there's sort of two components. One is is called agency, and it's really the will to act the, the, you're, that you're committed to actually doing something um, to uh, move forward. And the other is called pathways, which is multiple pathways. You, you need to have you know options available to you because you're going to find obstacles and roadblocks somewhere along the way. Yeah. And so if you can sort of uh, uh, you know, pursue uh, you know multiple pathways um, that gives you hope, and so I think that uh, really is true about how we can more adaptively govern and manage our uh, water resources. Um, there are lots of good examples out there of, uh, of really great conservation efforts that have been undertaken. Uh, you know, improvements of efficiency. Um, um, and uh, you know, some, some really good planning. So, for, for example, I, one uh, plan I'm aware of is the Santa Ana Water Project Authority in Southern California, kind of in Orange County and uh, Riverside and San Bernardino area. And uh, they've developed a really kind of multi-strategy uh, plan that um, looks at climate change is, is sort of the new normal and tries to adopt a variety of different approaches that will um, improve the stability and security of water supplies, but also um, 
see the problems from the whole system. So, so one that you mentioned environmental issues, and if our goal is just to kind of preserve the environment just as it is or restore it to some past conditions before humans interfered with it, the sort of a lot of the work of ecological scientists and, and sort of resilience these days say that that's kind of uh, foolish. That's kind of, that's not um, a very um, you know not a very wise strategy because um, in, environmental systems constantly change, and the relationships between society and environmental systems mean that they're going to be changing. And so just to try to preserve it in an existing condition is not good. On the other hand, though, if we're destroying the very ecosystems on which we depend, whatever strategies we're using, whether it's desalination or reservoirs or, um, you know, um, storing water in groundwater aquifers or whatever it happens to be, they're not going to work. They're, they're ultimately going to fail because right. we're not seeing the system as a whole. So I, I guess so these looking for multiple strategies rather than, you know, some sort of silver bullet, rather than some solution that's going to uh, fix everything um, is, is the way. Um, I also think it's going to be, you know, that pursuit of multiple pathways is about sort of this goes through iterations. So right now folks are a little discouraged out in California because there's all this litigation over the state's efforts to um, constrain water rights. Um, and there's actually been a case where there's some water conservation pricing called tiered pricing in um, Orange County, which was struck down by a court as being um, illegal, that it doesn't reflect the true cost of water. And, and that's is discouraging if what you want to do is encourage people to conserve. <laughs> right. Um, so, but the the so so that's kind of where things are now. Um, but what we know from how people cooperate when they kind of organize around watersheds, which are areas of land that drain to a common body of water. So that could be you know a small creek in your neighborhood or it could be huge, like the Colorado River Basin, right? But, but when we know when people um, organize and cooperate to address problems around watersheds, that there is conflict and that, you know, different interests clash and so forth. But the ultimately through multiple iterations of process, um, we actually find a lot of solutions. We find a lot of, of um, efforts to think more systemically and um, improve our resilience and adaptation uh, for the future. So that, those kind of examples give me hope. Um, you know, the tougher problem, of course, is just going to be how do you do that on a large scale, like, for example, Colorado River Basin. That's, yeah. that's one that has, has huge issues. Uh, but we know that, for example, um, uh, the Blackfoot uh, Valley up in Montana, Blackfoot Challenge, that have done great things working together. Um, and Clark Fork, also in Montana, is another good example uh, of, of that. And so, um, you know, I think there, there are models out there, uh, but it is about seeing that we share the risk yeah. rather than just not – rather than constantly – threats and conflict. Yeah, it's it's almost about uh, a need for cooperation versus competition, 
Because right. if, if it just turns competitive and everyone's fighting, then it just we're just going to suffer. I, what I love as I look at um, and listen to – I listen to a report here in Utah where our conservation agents uh, about – the water conservation agencies were talking about kind of a 100-year outlook. And I sit mm-hmm. there and I think, where else, honestly – except in like probably water management and resource management and land management and government. Where else are we thinking 100 years out? But these, right. these guys have a lot of hope. And, I mean, they, I mean, they were just saying, you know, you might need $100 million, I can't remember the number, but $100 million, let's say, to ensure enough water for dramatic growth in the state of Utah – by just creating some more of you know some more of these water basins and dams and things like that, and I'm thinking they're that far ahead, and because they're that far ahead, they have hope. But mm-hmm. the rest of us that are kind of when we when we're doing this reactively, the hope seems to fade, doesn't? I guess because the pathways shrink and our agencies maybe diminished because there's less we can do. Right, or or, or at least we perceive. Yeah, it's perceived we, that we, way we exactly. Right, and we and that's right. I, another really good example from Utah, um, it's not really water per se, but it's more sort of growth and, and planning generally is, is Envision Utah, yeah. uh, which is another very sort of hopeful and cooperative kind of uh, uh, effort. It's it really it's a and it's, this is why I think that I it's a powerful opportunity for our country, and again I think it's something that maybe a lot of the people on the east side of the country or, or central they they may not they may not appreciate this experience um, just because the drought is going to it's it's going to be unique except I think there's a powerful opportunity uh, to have something great come out of it. There's something interesting when. You know, when you have a trial like this or a difficulty, if we can get ahead of it and be united and cooperative and, and you know, like you're saying, resilient and adaptive, um, man, you can create some pretty amazing stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the examples we sort of see in the East, there are a few that are centered around drought. So so Georgia and okay. the Atlanta area went through that. Um, that's, of course, an episodic. That's a little bit, you know, it's not, a, you know, it wasn't quite nearly as serious as, as California. But the, but the but another sort of area where we see a lot of this in the East has to do with um, flood and stormwater. Yeah, there you go. Where, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of complex interconnected issues and communities are having to deal with it and you know at first there's a lot of resistance yeah well when you think about it um tony we have about 30 seconds what's what what advice would you give to uh i guess the politicians that have to kind of manage this but the people in general of the west what what should we be doing to to make sure we're we're actually getting ahead of this problem yeah, I, I think uh, for people in general, um, attitude of stewardship and shared risk is big. Uh, for the policymakers, I think more flexibility, adaptive systems, and um, trying multiple methods. Yeah, man, that's I mean, it's it's great advice, and hopefully we can do it even you know more proactively now. Let's start planning ahead. Well, Tony Arnold, we appreciate you, my friend. And again, uh, keep up the great work at the University of Louisville. Uh, we'll have you back on in, uh, you know, probably in about a year when we need this uh, 
this discussion even more. Good stuff. We'll take a break, my friends. Uh, Isn't it interesting how dependent we really are on each other and how you can't plan for everything, but you can use your agency and uh, keep your options open. And by doing so, you might generate some hope. We're going to take a break. Come right back, uh, do a little Coach's Corner on stewardship right here on The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to Your Guide on the Side, The Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. When you think about it, Honestly, um, a drought in the West. You remember the Dust Bowl, you know, in the Midwest? Um, The Depression. Do you remember Hurricane Katrina? I mean, a problem in any part of the country is a problem for everybody in the country. Your, you know, economic problems in California are going to impact everybody. So when we think about any of these challenges, I I would just, as part of the Coach's Corner, challenge all of us to remember, and and Tony Arnold, our earlier guest, brought up a great word, or two, or actually three, uh, hope, and he, he taught us that hope is a byproduct of having agency, knowing that you have choices to make, that you are an agent that will act, and I believe every human being on this earth is here to act. You're not just here to be acted upon. You're here to act. You're not even just here to let, you know, nature act just upon you. You can also proactively choose how you're going to manage nature to the degree that you can manage nature, right? Um, You also have, so you have agency. You also have to keep your choices and your options open. I would call that freedom. He calls it pathways, But the more freedom you have, we can have all the rights in the world and the freedom in the world. But if you don't act on the freedom because or you don't see that you have freedoms, then they're not there for you. So hope is a byproduct of knowing you're an agent with choices. And the best way to get more choices is to keep your mind open and keep learning more and more things. And the more things you know, the more choices you have, which gives you more hope. Right. The minute you have no more options and you don't think you are an agent, we're in trouble. And so when we're trying to sit and think about managing our, our, our monies or if we're trying to manage our water supply, uh, we've got to know that we're agents. And so think about that. It's one thing in this world to be given all the rights that we have. But with every right is a demanded responsibility. We hear the Supreme Court making decisions all the time that are holding up rights. And with those rights come responsibilities for all of us. Um, And with water usage comes certain responsibilities, especially if you want to be part of the community of water. And this demands management and this demands some proactivity and some planning and some, some, some choices to be made. That was one word he brought up was the hope. Another one he brought up that I think is fascinating is stewardship. Do you feel as a user that you have a stewardship over how much money or how much water you use? We made a mistake once. One of our lines in our house uh, broke, and it was an underground line outside, and it was just spewing water for months. We didn't even know about it. And um, we eventually had the water you know, company come to us and just say, whoa, you've used 
thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water. I felt horrible. I felt guilty. Like we felt guilty because we've wasted all of this water. And our kids come home and tell us to turn off our water and don't brush your teeth with the water on. Do you feel like you're a steward of your resources in your city, in your community? Because every one of us, we are. And steward is is a really sacred thing. You have the you have the stewardship of the environment, but you also have the stewardship of your family to teach your family how to appreciate and love and care for the environment. And you don't have to be a you know big tree hugger to go do that, but you can you can be a good steward. So just remember those words: steward, agent, options, right, pathways, and hope. It's all good, folks. It's all good. Uh, West will make it through the drought. Let's just let's just plan. Let's get on the same page. Let's be cooperative. Let's be good stewards. That's the Coach's Corner. We're going to take a break. More on the Matt Townsend Show next hour after the news. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your guide on the side, your coach, helping you to uh, get the tools, the information you need to make better decisions to hopefully find some hope. It's not easy. Life's a tough thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, you got to deal with the trials of life. You want to be the best kind of person you can be, right? You want to maximize your gifts, your talents, everything you've been given. And yet, here we sit and, you know, you just got to go to work. You got to work. And the more you work, the better you get. And the better you get, the more needed you are. And the more needed you are, the, the more they need you at work. Sometimes you work yourself into a hole. Have you ever noticed that? Where you're so valuable, you can't have a life or you don't have a life. Or you're so having to dig the holes that you can't get out of the hole. That's a, that's a major part of, I think, what stresses us out. And I think in the end, it, it, it makes us seem like life's not great. We get caught up in it. So one of the goals of this program is to help you be able to see the good in the world and, and find the good in the world. Today, we got a great subject, a great topic coming up. We're going to be talking with Josh Levs, and you may have heard of him. He's on CNN. Uh, he wrote a book called All In, How Our, first, uh, How Our Work First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses. How Our Work First Culture is Failing Us in Every Way. Now, it brings us a lot of satisfaction, doesn't it? It makes us feel really good about ourselves, except it also is hurting, um, I think, in the end, our psyche. It hurts our sense of really what val- what is valuable, what's important. And um, it's a big deal. For example, my family are leaving for a trip to Colorado. They're all going, and Daddy's staying home to hold down the fort. Now, some of that's pretty nice because that means daddy gets a break from the family. However, some of it is just not very good because, I'd, you know, it'd be fun to go. 
but I got to work and then I got to work and then I've got some work to do. And then while I'm at it, I'm probably going to do some yard work and then I'm going to prepare a lesson for church so I could work on the Sabbath. Just a lot of work. And then I'm so obligated that I didn't, and I didn't think ahead. Actually, this is something that was kind of sprung on us at the last minute. And my kids are out of school, so they just can all go. But, you know, I was obligated. Now, sometimes it's hard to balance fatherhood and work and life. And today we'll be talking about it with uh, Josh Levs. Stick with us on this one. This is an important subject because if you're a dad and you want to be a better dad— we know we need to be better dads. A lot of times in our world, dads are kind of played up as just a bunch of buffoons that don't have a clue. But deep in our hearts, we all know we want to be better at it. And I think if you stick with us through this next hour, you're going to get a chance to get some pretty cool insight and some ideas from um, somebody that's that struggled with it himself. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty high-profile guy, Josh Levs. We're gonna, we'll get to that, but before we do... Let's go to somebody who knows balance inside and out. Kathy Aiken, she's going to bring us the headlines. Thank you, Matt. Federal investigators are looking into a series of fires that have recently burned at African-American churches. Last night's fire at the Mount Zion AME Church in Greeley, South Carolina, marked the eighth fire at historic black churches in the last two weeks. The Mount Zion Church was burned down 20 years ago by the Ku Klux Klan. Investigators are looking into whether arson or thunderstorms in the area started last night's blaze. The fires have been reported in four different states. The two New York prison escapees reportedly began plotting their scheme back in January. David Sweat and Richard Matt even did a dry run the night before they got free on June 6th. Matt was killed by police last Friday while Sweat was shot Sunday and remains in the hospital. Meanwhile, because of the escape, several prison executives, including the superintendent, have been placed on leave pending an investigation. This weakness and indecisiveness in the Oval Office has sent a wave of anxiety through our country. But I'm here today to tell you that anxiety can be swept away by strong leadership and decisiveness to lead America again. That was New Jersey Governor Chris Christie yesterday throwing his name into the crowded GOP presidential field. Christie is now the 14th Republican contender. Ohio Governor John Kasich is expected to enter the Republican race later this month. Another GOP candidate, Donald Trump, has filed a $500 million lawsuit against Univision after the network said it won't air the upcoming Miss USA and Miss Universe pageants. Univision's announcement came after Trump's controversial remarks about Mexican immigrants. Trump is part owner of the two pageants. A high school English teacher in Illinois was fired after stepping on the American flag in class last month. Jordan Parmenter reportedly dropped the flag on the floor, then stepped on it to show an example of free speech. The teacher said he didn't intend to show disrespect with the lesson. However, he was placed on leave after the incident, and the Martinsville School Board recently voted unanimously to dismiss him effective immediately. The U.S. women's soccer team headed to the World Cup final after shutting out Germany 2-0 last night. They await the winner of tonight's semifinals between Japan and England. The championship game on Sunday and a win for the U.S. would be the third World Cup title for the women. And Matt, you ready for this? Rocky Balboa is returning to the big screen. Hold on, hold on. Yeah, I know. Really? He's only 95, but he's returning, yeah. 
He, but this one's going to be a little bit different. Okay. A little bit okay. different twist, okay? So you remember Rocky's early com- uh, opponent. Do you remember his name um, in the movie? Was it, it was Dolph Lundgren, that guy? No, really oh, early. Oh, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Apollo Apollo Creed. Creed. Yes. Well, this next movie is going to follow the character Adonis Johnson, played by Michael B. Jordan, who is Apollo's son. But in, not, uh, not Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. Michael not B. The, Jordan. Mike, okay. Just throw in the B and you'll Apollo's know it's not son. the basketball okay, player. Cool. Yeah. So the, Apollo's son wants to be a great fighter mm-hmm. like, his, like dad, his dad. And of course he hires a trainer who is... Muhammad, or, uh, <laughs> Muhammad Ali. That'll be great. Yeah, that, That's a great show. That would That's not, a great show. Rocky Balboa. Rocky Balboa. So Rocky Balboa is going to train Apollo's son. Son, exactly. Because yeah, Rocky and Apollo became good buddies, they didn't did. they? They did. They did. They became buddies. And so now the son, it'll be interesting to see how old... <laughs> If Rocky's supposed to be in the show. I think that's weird. But the movie's called Creed. Okay. And it's going to come out in November. No word on if Adrian. Adrian. Yo, Adrian. Adrian will be. I'll, uh... <laughs> that's the only impression I do. That sounded like him after the sixth movie when he could yeah. no longer speak very well. You know, <laughs> that's, right. you know that's, uh, that's interesting. This, again, it just seems like we just keep kind of recreating uh, old stuff. Yes, yeah. That was one of the classics, though. I remember that first one sitting oh. there, and she just wanted to run up those you know, those uh-huh. steps in, in Philadelphia, Philadelphia along with him. You know? I've actually run awesome. up them. Have I, you yeah. really? I think that's where my plantar started. That my plantar started. fasciitis yep. broke out right there. Right there. That, Let's um, claim that. Do you remember? And he would. Uh, that's where eating the raw egg became exactly. popular. yeah. And then there was the health warnings, like, don't eat raw eggs. eggs. But then we learned yesterday that the 115-year-old lady has one raw egg every day. One raw egg a day. So it does something good, Well, it's something. Yeah. It's doing something. So um, is that – that's interesting. When's this movie coming out? In November. Okay. Yep. So, um, you know, be ready for that. I think it's a great twist. I think it's a fun twist. And that Michael B. Jordan Jordan is a good actor, so that should be good. Why is – why does Rocky not have a kid with Adrian? I don't know. Maybe he wasn't a very good fighter. I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Maybe as a daughter. I think it's, it's, just, it's just with his relationship with Apollo Creed, that was yeah. kind of a big deal. And yeah. so now that's probably why. And that's Interesting. his son. I think it'll be good. Sounds really We're good, ready. actually. Good job. You, good you never make better music, though, than came from that rock no, no, original. No, no, no. that was cool. You can't beat that. Yeah. Those were the days. You know what? Life was so Those simple the back days, then. Yeah. Just when you could just, you know, get in your little gray sweatsuit. You remember the, just the little gray sweatsuit? And, just... and run, I think he was running in Chuck Taylors. Uh-huh. I mean, come on. Oh, yeah. That's You're, when you get no arches in a Chuck sure. Taylor shoe. Yeah. That's and probably why you go, got it. That's you exactly. I used to run in my Chucks. <laughs> Need uh, a little better arch support yeah, than that. Yeah. That's, uh, and then he'd go pound on the meat at the meat mm-hmm, market or whatever. Mm-hmm. Those were the days. Remember how easy that was to be a world champion? Yeah. Now very it's complicated. Easy. Now it's very complicated. <laughs> Now there's drugs and everything. There's involved, drugs. You know? Yeah, you have to have an entourage. Uh-huh. All the bling of today. Bling, bling. It was so that bling. That was. That's Blingless. why it was good. That's why people loved it because he was just the Yo, ordinary Adrian. guy. Oh, yeah. John. Good times. Good job, Kathy. Always bringing back a little nostalgia for all of us. Um, here's the deal. In a minute, we're going to be bringing on Josh Levs. Uh, he is, uh, you know, you know him as a reporter for CNN News Television Network. He's he really is. Uh, he's he's the real deal. The guy has won many Peabody Awards, like I think six Peabody Awards and um, two Edward Murrow Awards. He's been uh, designated as the journalist of the year from the Atlanta Press Club. He's going to be joining us to talk about his new book, All In, How Our Work First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, and How We Can Fix It Together. This all stems 
from uh, when his baby was born, he wanted to take paternity leave. He wanted six weeks off to be with his, his premature baby and to help his family. And his employer said no. And it led to a lawsuit. And that led to the book. It's a big deal. We're going to be talking about dads today. And uh, what we can do to, uh, you know, is, is maternity leave the only thing that matters? Or does paternity matter as well? We'll be getting into all of this up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. And as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is uh, Josh Levs, and uh, you know, in The Wolf of Wall Street, you know that film, and in other films, the bigger the office, the bigger the payoff, the greater the prestige, you know, the better. No matter what the cost of the family or personal life, paradoxically though, real life paints a different picture. According to a Pew Research poll, Americans expect dads to be more of a moral teacher and emotional comforter than a breadwinner or disciplinarian. About 6 in 10 Americans, 58%, say it is extremely important for a father to provide values and morals to his children. And just 41% say providing income for his family is one of the father's most important responsibilities. Josh Levs is an investigative journalist and expert on modern fatherhood. He joins us now live to discuss his new book, All In, how work first culture fails dads, families, and businesses, and how we can fix it together. Mr. Levs, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. And you're totally right about that. And not just that, but dads these days, when they're asked, they say the same thing. It's more important to them to have time with our kids yeah. than, uh, than to make the money. Oh, it's so true. But we, it's, yeah. we really, though... We're kind of we're in a weird space, it seems like, because all we hear about are maternity leaves and uh, maternity and, and just and right. it's almost like dads have moved to this role of not being as important, except mm-hmm. and no, it's almost like we don't even care. Like we don't. I'm a dad. I have six kids for crying out loud. And wow. I want to wow. be a better dad. And yet I also feel this, I guess, compulsion to have to keep killing the dragon. That's right. No, and this is this is how it works. And you're right that unfortunately the 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 needs of dads and the the needs of families to have dads at home have not got enough attention from the places that matter, the places that set up the structures that we're dealing with. And and what I figured out, what I learned when I was writing all in, is that all of the problems that we do hear about are intimately connected to the ones we don't hear about. So, you know, we hear a lot about how there's no paid maternity leave in America. And that is ridiculous. Yeah. It makes no sense at all. We're the only developed nation that doesn't make sure that after a birth, a woman can be home with, you know, with some pay. Um, but we rarely hear anyone talk about the lack of paternity leave. There's so little in this country. But they both come from the same thing. The lack of paid maternity leave and the lack of paternity leave at all both come from this old assumption that the man is supposed to stay at work and make all the money while the woman stays home and who yeah. needs her money. So when we fix that way of thinking, we can fix the problems that on both sides that are affecting men and women. Now you, that was a great point. I can't even, I, rem- I read it in somewhere that you had written, the more that we say that men have to keep working, the more we're forcing women to stay home. Or the more we force women to stay home, the more we force men to work. 
that's what's happening is we're taking choices away and it doesn't make any sense. You know, I grew up with this belief in gender equality. I, there was this album we used to listen to when I was little called Free to Be You and Me. And it was all about how boys and girls could grow up and have careers and be parents. And, you know, I believed that. And the girls that I knew were every bit as smart and capable. And they also went to great schools. And, and now here I am. I'm 43 years old. And less than 5% of the CEOs are women. In the uh, S&P 500. So sure. it's like, where did we go wrong? What went wrong? <laughs> well, this is what went wrong. Yeah. All of our structures, our laws and policies and stigmas are still pushing men to stay at work for more and more and more hours and women to stay home, taking choices away and hurting families. Well, and we even have research showing that working longer doesn't make you smarter or better. It doesn't make it better. No. It Being there more. Fact, yeah. Yeah. That, that's what I love, too. You know what, though? I think about this, Josh, because you've won six Peabody Awards. You've won, you've won all these awards. I'm sitting here thinking you might be one of the only guys that could have gotten away with what you've done because you, uh, you are a CNN journalist, and you, your wife had a, had a difficult pregnancy. You wanted to be there after the baby was born, and you, wanted, you asked for parental leave. You wanted six weeks, I believe. Or you wanted 10? No, you wanted 10? Well, here's, so here's the thing. I mean, th- this shows you how messed up our, our systems are. So, so uh, CNN is part of Turner, yeah. and it's all part of Time Warner. Okay, so there was a policy in place allowing caregiving leave for other parents. So even aside from a mom who gave birth, if, if someone adopted a kid, they could get 10 paid weeks. If, under the policy, if hmm. someone used a surrogate, they could get ten paid weeks. Wow! So the thinking was that they will, and, and so could moms who gave birth. They got ten paid weeks. So <laughs> anyone could get ten paid weeks, except yeah. a guy who got his own wife pregnant. Well, yeah, and that was the only kind of parent who couldn't. So I told them, wait a second, I need this leave, and that's what they said no to. And that, and then that. What's so cool though? You're still working for CNN and Time Warner and Turner, and <laughs> you're still working with all of them, and yet you wrote a book talking about this. And you're getting away with it. I mean, it's like you should be unemployed right now. I know. Okay, so so what I've learned in this process is that workers don't know their rights. So yeah. the way it works is that there's something there's this thing called the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And so what I filed with my lawyers was um, a charge for gender discrimination with that commission, the EEOC. And when you do that, you have legal protections. So here's the thing. They're not allowed to retaliate against you. Yeah, there you They're go. not allowed to fire you, but that doesn't mean they won't. My attorney told me at the very beginning, he said, look, it's illegal for them to fire you for this, but they still might. Yeah. So I knew I was risking my job, but I also you know, just hoped that they wouldn't want to do something illegal. Yeah. Well, and uh, so, yeah, it, I remained employed. But you've also – what I love about it, though, you, you can do it because you're good. So – and, and not everybody, I guess, has that level of, of skills, but I always teach that um, high performance fosters independence of action. So the better performer you are, the more independent and free you are to take a stand, to ask for what you need. And and again, you, you also have a really good, you know, you have a book now. You have a, you have a yeah. fan base. You, so I, I think it takes this. It takes people like you that are willing to, to put it out there. I mean, a lot of us would be too afraid to ask for yeah. the time. Yeah. People, oh, not just that, but look, around the country, I explain this in the book, uh, men, families are leaving billions of dollars on the table because 14% of companies offer some paid paternity leave, which is, you know, a pathetically small number, and the amount offered is going down. But even among that, most guys aren't taking it. And the reason is what you're talking about, the reason is fear. Because to this day, there are all these stigmas, and I have all these examples in the book of guys who did take some time off 
for caregiving. And when they got back, they were demoted or fired, uh-huh. lost opportunities because they broke from this macho culture. And it's just, it's just a very small minority of guys who think that way. But they're the CEOs. <laughs> they're the ones who are in charge. And the few other guys who think that way get risen up the ranks. So we're caught up in this vicious cycle. And you're right. I mean, it takes people standing up and saying, no, I won't give in to the, the bully of this. Was, you, you gave an example of somebody that, pushed, that really was pushing for it. Was it you? But your, your, not your wife. Your boss was a pregnant female. Yeah, good memory. Yeah, there's a guy in the book, not me. Okay. He, um, his baby was born in an emergency, uh-huh. and he, he ran out during the day, and all he did was miss the rest of that week. So it was just a couple days. <laughs> a couple days. He got back to work on Monday, and his boss called him in and rebuked him. How dare he have taken off so much time? And this is a really frightening emergency, by the way. The placenta had stopped working. They didn't oh, know what he was going to make. Yeah, so the baby was fine. So he missed those two days. His boss called him in and rebuked him, and that boss was a pregnant woman, <sighs> which, which surprised me and surprised so many people, except... The, the lawyers out there who are really the ones leading this fight or happened for years, most of them are women, they're not surprised at all when I tell them that because there are men and women who are still caught up in this old mad men mentality that men should just stay at work no matter what happens. Uh, it, it's so interesting. It's, it, doesn't cut, it doesn't work both ways, does it? Is that, is that what you mean when you talk about gender police? Yeah, exactly. Those in the gender police. You know, I have a guy in the book who says it's like the wild, wild west out there with all these people policing, you know, in, in, into these old gender norms. Like, well, you're a man. You're supposed to yeah. work all the time. I talk about this thing called it, what you were talking about. It's the hours stigma in which guys are rewarded work literally for just sitting at their desks for more hours and not getting more done. Yeah. And the businesses that realize they're doing that and instead look at accomplishments across a week or month or quarter, they do better. And they start to say, oh, it's fine to be flexible. It's fine to you know, go when you have to go. Let's see how much work you actually get done. Yeah. But this is the old mentality we have to snap out of. But the war, I mean, that's an, it's an interesting thing, which might be, I mean, there's certain jobs that it, they do just check hours, and there's other jobs that they they want awards. They want they want you to to nail your your moment, and you know, right. write, writing a book or oh, it's just I think it's I think you're into something, and it's cool because again, it, it seems like the men have been the butt of the parenting jokes forever, oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. and yet we almost need to as guys kind of stand up and say, you know what, my kids are important to me. I want to be with my family and and break up some of these myths. Yeah, and so part of what I'm doing here with, with All In is making sure that men are heard and that, that guys know that we're welcome to speak out on these issues. Some of the guys in the book say that, that they felt all this, and that they've been afraid to speak out, partly because they didn't want to lose their jobs, but also because they were afraid that people would say to them, oh, well, you're a privileged man in America. Yeah. Who are you to talk about this? But in fact, guys are suffering from as much or more work-life conflict as than women. And it's all connected. When you start to understand that our needs as men and women in this country with respect to our families and our jobs are so interconnected, the fear of speaking out can go away and we can actually get this done. Mm, Love it. Let's take a break, Josh. We're going to come back, continue this discussion with Josh Levs, author of the book All In, How Our Work First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, and How We Can Fix It Together. We're going to come back. I want to, Josh has got a really great uh, list of ideas for how we can kind of face this stigma. If you're trying to beat up this stigma in your work environment, Stick with us. We've got some great ideas on that. And remember, even if you want to be a stay-at-home mom and a working dad, it doesn't mean you shouldn't try to still break down some of these barriers. 
Uh, it, it really is. It's a powerful opportunity to, uh, to grow your family. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we say we love families. Families matter. Families are important. We're a family-friendly business. We hear all of this until, you know, your wife has a baby and you want to take some paternity leave. And then it's like, nope, sorry, no time for you. All In is the name of the book, How Our Work-First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, Our Guest, uh, and How We Can Fix It Together. Our guest is Josh Levs. Josh is a CNN uh, reporter. He's the real deal, folks. Six Peabody Awards, two Edward R. Murrow Awards, and uh, the the designation as Journalist of the Year from Atlantic Press Club. And he's a dad, which probably first and foremost of every award we could talk about, Josh is probably proudest about being a dad. And he's actually out there fighting for dads. Uh, and you got to get the book. To me, it was. It's. I'm so grateful that I was able to start reading it. I haven't finished it yet, but it gives me some power as a dad that today is watching my family drive away on a little vacation. That was kind of an unexpected, quick vacation. Uh, but I can't go because I'm. I'm really scheduled. Ugh, frustrating. Josh Levs, welcome back to the show, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me back. And you're right about the awards. The only one that is not in storage is this one that says I'm the most entertaining parent at my kid's preschool. Literally, that's the only one they, I have. Did you get that award? That's great. But, yeah, it was just because I was, you know, like coming in and making faces at all the kids. But that's a lot of that. Like but that's that. cool. And honestly, that this is the award that's going to last the longest, right? The rest will tarnish. The rest won't matter. But matter. your baby will care. Hey, talk yeah. to us about the stigma that we face as, you know, sure. and how do we blow it? I know you've got uh, or fix it. We've got yeah. a lot of steps that can help us through that. We do. So the first thing to understand is that when you have a paid family leave program, a lot of these stigmas have to go away. Paid family leave programs work really well. They exist in three states right now. And what they do is they ensure that moms get time off and then dads get time off, too. So it's not up to your business to say yes or no. And they're structured in a way that businesses love it. Businesses are are praising it and saying um, that's working out great because they're not required to pay salaries when you're off either. They operate through this insurance system. So um, I worked with the folks at Change.org, and we have just last night posted a petition that everyone can see. If you go to my website, joshlabs.com, at Change.org, it'll it'll link you over there. And it's a call for for paid family leave on a national level because we are the only country in the world that doesn't make sure that women can be home after a birth and still put food on the table. So this program, though, is like an insurance program, right? So the employers pay a little into it, and then you can take and get some pay out as you need it. Right. So the way it works in the states right now, California, New Jersey, and Rhode Island, is that the employers actually aren't paying. Workers pay a little bit into this fund, and then they can get it. A national policy that's being considered would be small contributions from workers and from businesses capped off at like 200 bucks a year. So it's not that much. But then when you 
when you need paid family leave, you're drawing on this big pool of funds that everyone has put, has put into. And you can use it to take care of your kids or an elderly parent or an elderly spouse or yourself beyond your own sick time. And it's now proven to be good across the board, and we just need to, to get support for that. I Love that. That's one of the biggest things we can do. Um, and then, you know, when you talk about steps, so if you are in, in a workplace in which you are facing these things, what I, I say is start off really optimistically and positively, and I talk you through steps one through ten, one through five, and I say, look, the first thing to do is to talk with HR, talk with benefits, talk with bosses, and explain, hey, you know, I, family is really important to me, and I would love to be able to have this, you know, this time to whatever it is, coach my kids little league, um, and and give them a shot, give them a chance to do the right thing, and I explain to them where you can gather the right research about businesses in your industry and how they're profiting from helping parents be parents. Um, And I give you statistics to bring to them that show that businesses that embrace dads as dads and moms as moms when their workers end up doing better because they hold on to employees for the long term. The employees are more productive, more loyal, more happy. Um, And it's a win-win for them because they're replacing employees. It's really, really expensive, and it requires all this training. So when you're able to keep your employees and keep them happy, you do better. But It's it's education. You have to take the role, right, as being the educator. Yeah. Yeah, you have to, exactly. You've got to take all that initiative. But I also do explain that in the end, if you are facing what I was facing, which was gender discrimination, then know your rights and don't be afraid. Understand that it is okay to stand up for your rights. That's, that's ultimately really the American way, you know, and workers in this country only have two, two ways of expressing our power. One is through our legal rights. And the other is through speaking out. And yeah. so I've done both. And I understand most people won't need to do something as dramatic as I've done. But in your own little ways, I explain ways that you can do things that are similar that you don't have to be afraid of because you can look at my experience and see that I have lived to tell the tale. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and again, you kind of know if you're the one that has to take the stand or not. I mean, you, you, may not, you may not be in the position to, but you may also just use your, your skills to educate or to build a coalition or to build enough people that are interested. Exactly. And the thing is, you know, there, there is one study that I point to in which businesses – say that they are willing to consider flexible schedules and helping helping their workers um, do what they need to do for their families and that workers just aren't asking. You know, there's a White House study I point to that specifically they, they asked workers and then they asked businesses at the same places, mm-hmm. business leaders, and the business leaders more often said, oh yeah, I would totally consider that. But the workers said they had never asked because they didn't think it would be considered. So Yeah, we're afraid. You know, it seems like we're so afraid. People, we're so afraid. And, and, and to me, the, the way to get over that fear is to think of that fear as a bully. You know, the fear that tells you as a man that there's something unmanly yeah. to your bosses or coworkers about being a dad, that's something that if we all stand up against it, then the bully will lose his power. So let's do that together. That's always, cool. You know? yeah. yeah. No, totally. And, and then if you have to push, you can get great legal advice. Get, get the best yeah. you can. Yeah, so and I explain that, too. I know people are wary of calling lawyers. That's expensive. There's a, a group I talk about in the book that that's operates out of California. They have a toll-free hotline, and they said that after I announced the legal steps I was taking, they suddenly started getting all these calls from dads. Hmm. It's a free legal hotline, which is great because this hotline teaches you things that even a lot of lawyers don't know. You yeah. know, One thing I've learned in my experience is a lot of lawyers don't realize 
the rights that the rights that dads have because for so many decades they've only thought about the rights of women facing discrimination so yes these free hotlines can be very helpful and there are ways that you can strike up deals with good lawyers who will work with you on contingency and it's worth searching for them and finding them what do you do uh josh and what are you finding i mean because this is this 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 doesn't end for you whether whatever your company decides to do this child's going to get older and things are going to change how do you keep uh i mean how do you keep it that fight on i mean at different stages of your life and right. at different stages of your family right right so i guess i should mention the good news is that time warner did revolutionize its, its decision making policy and they ended up yeah changing it dramatically and as a result of the change that they made um, not only are dads getting a lot more time now. Before we used to, dads like me only got two weeks. Now we get six. Um, and women got more time out of it as well. Birth moms got you know, more time out of the change. So, so you know. But you're right that what we're talking about there is about the kid's initial year of life. Yeah. And then we don't want that to disappear. So what's important to do is to have serious conversations about paid family leave, which can work any time that your kid is sick or, or needs you, but also um, flexibility. And this is where bringing the research about flexibility is so important. I have all these examples of dads who left bigger firms and went to smaller firms. And even though it was a a little bit of a a pay cut, they were happy to take it because these smaller firms were really supportive of them. And they're able to go be with their families now. They don't feel guilty when they take vacation. (laughs) They don't feel guilty when they go off and and coach Little League. Um, And so I think another thing that a lot of workers forget is that if you cannot get the kind of flexibility that you need with your employer to to really be the, the family guy you need to be, that you do have other choices. And I explain in the book that there's this terrible legacy from the 2008 financial fiasco in which people became so afraid of losing their jobs that they forgot that when the economy gets better, you might just be able to get a different job. Yeah. So it's always worth looking at the competition and looking at smaller firms. It's possible that a small pay cut will pay off tremendously for you in other ways. Oh, you know what? And the freedom of it. Yeah, exactly. Or, or do your own consulting or go out on your own. And yeah, there's a lot of options. Yeah, there's a guy in the book in my book who's a chef who gave up his job at a, a restaurant and uh, started his own business, uh, consulting business, as a chef because he got sole custody of his daughter. Hmm. And um, a bit of a pay cut, but he doesn't regret it for a split second. It's been you know the best thing he's ever done in his life. Isn't that interesting? A little less money may actually create a much better life. Talk about fatherlessness yeah. anyway. I mean, yeah. may, maybe that should be the ultimate motivator because. Kids right. growing up without their fathers, it's a, it's a, it really is. It's a big problem in today's day and age. It is. It is. Okay, so two things to know about this. First, I explain in the book that every statistic you've ever heard about fatherlessness is wrong. They're all wrong. <laughs> there is a lot of fatherlessness in America, but when you hear people say things like 22 million kids or 17 million kids, yeah. all those figures are wrong. It's not that big. It is too big. But it's not that big, and I explain why. That's good. And plus, there's all these racial lies out there, like this idea that most black dads aren't there. That's not true either. Most black kids are being raised by their dads at home. So, so the fatherlessness crisis is real, but it's not as prevalent as people think it is. And then what we need to do is realize that this is something we never hear about. Counteracting the fatherlessness crisis means doing these same things. It means embracing fatherhood as a society. This brings us full circle to what you were talking about earlier, Matt. This whole idea that we need to stop discounting the role of the man Mm. in the family, the role of the father. The more that we make clear in our laws and policies and by dropping these stigmas that we understand that fatherhood is very important and should be supported, 
the more we will do to counteract this crisis in which guys think, oh, well, I'm not that relevant. The mom's there. I can just leave, you know, which is disgusting and yeah. shameful. Yeah. Um, so the, the messaging really matters there. Is is um, the messaging does matter. And it's almost in a way we may not. Do we have good enough role models of being a father that we actually recognize as a good role model? Because we, it seems like we've been we've been dumbed down so much right. just in the media that it's like nobody even knows right. what a good father looks like. Teach us a little bit yeah. about what is manliness. What what should what is well rounded being a dad? What does that right. look like? No, you're exactly right. It's, it's the, the media images are really problematic. Some of the guys I interviewed in this book, we have a section on pop culture here, and some of the guys in the book say that they think that, maybe it's the chicken or the egg, but they think that this begins, all these things we're talking about here, begin with television. That we have to eradicate these images of the Homer Simpson and, yeah. you know, American Dad and these clueless dads who or, you know, stupider than their four-year-old children, the ones that propagate all these ads. Um, because they do send bad messages to boys and girls and to families and, and to everyone. And they're also a reflection of, sadly, genuine belief that a lot of people no, have sure. that men yeah. are useless. So I call it Neanderthals. So when you're talking about real manliness, look, if you are a father, uh, no matter how you got into it, no matter whether you felt ready or not, whatever it is, if you're a dad, then taking care of your children, loving them, caring for them, being with them every day, uh, is the manliest thing you will ever do. And it by far outweighs the sum total of everything else, making the money and having your adventures. You know, those matter to you as a person. But once you're a dad, manliness is committing as a father, and everything else is, is in second place after that. And that's, that's a good thing, because yeah. once you allow yourself to love it, look, parenthood is exhausting for all of us, and... We all need breaks from our kids, you know, sometimes. But, um, I mean, for like a matter of hours, not yeah. walking away. Yeah. But, yeah. I'm but, out of uh, here for a month. <laughs> yeah, bye-bye. <laughs> uh, even if you feel like that sometimes. But ultimately, you know the rewards. I mean, you know this. You have yeah. to these kids. Yeah. Jeez, the rewards of parenthood beat everything else. Oh, yeah. But the vulnerability, too. You have to almost accept that you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable at yeah. work because you're being a great dad and everyone might be looking at you like, what are you trying to do? And you're vulnerable as a dad because you may not have all the natural skills that you think you need. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's hard sometimes. You know, there are moments when you're looking at your kids and you're like, I'm confounded. I don't know how to do this. Or or you take the easy way out. You know, there wasn't a day recently my wife but I had been away for four days and and both we limit screen time in our house, but it yeah. got to the point where my two boys, for whatever reason, were like exhausted, screaming, whatever. I was like, you know what? Just go watch a movie. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. It yeah. wasn't screen time that there, there are moments that, and then you feel a little guilty. You're like, oh, I'm such a I bad dad. That wasn't the best. <laughs> and you go in and they're watching Homer Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let them watch Homer. Come on, Josh. Walk your talk. That's crazy. But that's true. But you know what? That, that's everybody. But what's funny too, Josh, is you feel guilty. That's I know. But that, but that's also showing you're actually present and attentive enough to recognize that. I mean, half of us. That's how we. That's how we were raised, right? Oh, totally. In front of a TV. Yeah. Yeah, that's in front cool. of the TV. It's just like, yeah, okay, go eat and do everything in front of the TV so you want to time to tuck you into bed. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> not our style anymore. Not these days. It really is a cool book. Um, as we wrap it up, give us – I always like to know the one thing. If you had to, if you had to push everything into one concept about the, your book, All In, how our work first culture fails dads, families, and businesses, and how we can fix it together, what's the one thing we should all remember, Josh? 
that true gender equality is good literally for all of us. It's good across the board. It's good for girls and boys and, and men and women and businesses and the economy. It's good across the board and that you, you cannot have true gender equality or what people think of as, as valuing families without valuing dads as part of it. You know, true equality, true family value requires valuing fathers. So mm. let's make sure that we do that, and uh, we'll take some big steps forward. Love it, man. Great, great job, Josh, and great job on the book. Good luck with it. Thank you so much. Hey, knock, I appreciate it. Thanks. Knock it out of the park. Go uh, go hug your kids. Go turn off the TV. <laughs> Josh Leves is his name. Go check out the book, All In, How Our Work First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, and How We Can Fix It Together. Man, what great advice. Take care of your children they're yours and once you commit i love that commit and get into that role when you get into your role as a dad folks it's it's going to change your life it's the greatest thing that can ever happen kids are fantastic and they're helpful and they change you and they force selflessness it's amazing it's amazing gift uh we'll take a break we'll come back continue a little discussion on this topic this is the matt townsend show stick with us we'll be right back Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, in the house here, Kathy Aikens joining me. Uh, a little discussion about this this pressure. Like, when we, we're old. We are old. We're really not that. Speak it's for funny. yourself. We're the same age as Josh about, and yet Josh Leves that wrote that book um, about paternity leave. We never even thought about paternity leave. It never. couldn't happen. No. I, I don't ever recall talking about that. At all. I mean, it was a day or two. Yeah. When when I had my kids, and that's about all my husband took off, and that was it. See, it's ya. interesting. And yeah. then when we had our last baby, I was more in a position to probably take a week or two off, but I was self employed, so it was just hurting me. Right. And th- th- there's this weird mindset that I think I guess a lot of guys or dads have that you just gotta you just gotta keep working. Gotta provide. Maybe yeah. that's comes from our. We, that's where we get our identity is from what we do. I don't know. And when I heard the first of the segment, that song "Cats in the Cradle," yeah. is oh. there any more guilt-ridden <laughs> song than that as a parent? That song. I remember when I heard it when I was younger, mm-hmm. and I thought, "Wow, I hope when I get older and I have, I don't ever look back and and have those feelings because yeah. that really." Oh, that just it kills, kills you. you. Oh, yeah. it does. Did I miss this? Did I want to be that? like you, Dad. I want to work but, uh, hard. For and, you as a mother, yeah. that was hard for me. Yeah. How about you as a father? Well, and it's, yeah, because see, it was interesting with me growing up. So my parents divorced, so I would go see my, I'd see my dad every day and work with my dad. And But in the end, it's, you, you kind of, you end up working out of fear. You end up working out of not your ideal because it's mission-driven and this is your purpose. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we're doing it because we're afraid that if we don't, we're going to get T-boned and killed. I, to this day, still look in the want ads. And I'm not even looking for a job. I'm just trying to make sure I'm competitive. Sure something's out there. And I look through and I'm like, okay, I can do that. Right? I could do that. I really? could do that. It's pathetic. Isn't it kind of the hunter-gatherer kind yeah, of a thing? You guys is. are the hunters and, and yeah. we're supposed to be the gatherers, right? Right. But yeah, I'm, my husband still to this day, I mean, our kids are, are, are out of, all out of the house. He cannot disconnect on a vacation. He can't He's in do it. sales, and so he cannot. Yeah. One time, I mean, just please, one time, they can't do it. That fear of, like we uh-huh. talked off the air, missing that cell. Yeah. Uh, you miss that cell, that could mean this, that could mean you don't make your number this month. And I feel, I feel so badly thinking, 
I'm so grateful for his good work ethic mm-hmm. that he's taught our boys. Right. But on the other hand, I think, wow, you can't really truly enjoy this ever. This well, ever. Well, and so think when it will be. It will be the day. We're, we have a diagnosis, and we just can't work anymore. So true. What's the song, Live Like You Were Dying? Yeah. If that hits you, and you think, wow, what what did I miss out on, or what did I not do? Well, and then all of a sudden, I just worry that then I'd have to go deal with it anyway, mm-hmm. that my identity is around my job, that my identity is around all these things that don't matter to me. Mm-hmm. So maybe we all ought to be sitting there and, and cutting some of these ties where we make our identity our work. That's right. probably a, a, a fairly typical male problem. And and, it, and in a way, I wonder if it's not becoming a female problem where we're, we're starting to make our identity about something that's not maybe as important. I had a great experience. I've worked in the TV business about 25 yeah. years. And I remember working with a, a one of the women and she brought up two different women that I worked with. And she said, one is doing it because she has to work. She's the primary breadwinner in her family. She said the other one, it has become her identity. And Mm. that really struck me. I thought, if I ever have to say this is my identity... That, I couldn't live with that, no. I don't think. You know, not as a, as a woman, my identity, I hope, is not my career. Yeah. To me, yeah. the most important thing is my mother, uh, being a mother to my three boys. Yeah. And hopefully when I die, that's not my TV career isn't mentioned. It's the fact that I was a right. good wife and mother. That's the most important thing to me. As a man, though, yeah. it's different. It, well, it is, and, and I wonder if it should be. I mean, like what Josh is sitting here saying is that maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe what... Mm-hmm. Should be for the man is the same thing, that I'm a family man, that I'm a father, I'm a husband. Okay, but why can't you do it, though? Well, because I think historically we've been the role – we've been the, the money earner, right, the bread earner. Right. Bread earner. And yet and, – and we always were kind of seen as the one that wasn't the parent, but we were. We were – we you taught the morals, we taught the values, right, right. and yet I'm going to go to work now. And so we probably need to break the paradigm and start saying I need to be both mm-hmm. and – one of them's a precedence, and that's probably being a dad. Right. And so Absolutely. if that means making a little less money, it might be better that we both go work, maybe, mm-hmm. to make a little less money so that we can still make sure family's important to us. Right. It was interesting. We have a son who is heading out on a mission, and he wrote um, my husband a Father's Day card, and on it was so grateful for the work ethic that he showed him and, and said um, you know, all these wonderful things about what he has learned from him uh, working. And never once did he say, you know, you were we worked too much. Yeah. I never saw yeah. you, which was great. Yeah. I was I was happy for my husband that those words came from him. And all of my boys are very grateful for that. And my husband has been around. He's That's there it. for the boys. But yet on, for yeah. him, yeah. work is I think it's right great. at the top. It, it, I think it's a great question just that we all need to think about. So out there in listener land, be thinking about it. Where do you place your family, your priorities? And just mix it up a little bit more. Doesn't mean you have to go in the poorhouse. Just mix it up. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Whole new hour next hour. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your coach, your guide on the side. We do what we can on this program to give you the tools to navigate through this crazy thing we call life. Today, have we got a great topic for you. If you've got children, uh, do you ever have time to have dinner with them anymore? We are going to be talking about uh, the importance of dinner with your children 
not just, you know, for nutritional value, but also for life and for building family solidarity and unity. We're also going to be getting into memories and how you create positive memories for children. Remember, anyone can create a memory. You know, think of it. When you grew up, any interesting memories from your parents? I mean, some of them are embarrassing. Some of them were just scary. Some of them a little awkward memories. And we'll be getting into all of that with our guest uh, that's going to be coming up, Susan Newman. She'll be joining us, and she is a former professor from Rutgers University and the author of 15 books. And she's going to be talking about uh, the importance, the the, the necessary uh, time that comes around family dinner and how that can that can actually help to create healthier families, healthier lives. It really is a big deal when you think about it. You only have so much time with your kids. And for example, in the summer right now, our our children are all home. And so it's 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 a little more hectic. In fact, I saw some Facebook posts from um from friends saying, "Holy cow, summer's just starting. We've got to go through the rest of the year, the summer like this." And then dot 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 and then and I wouldn't trade these moments for anything. So we can get overwhelmed in life and then overlook some of the important moments. And yet one of the most important moments that you know you're going to have every day will be dinner. In our family, sometimes dinner is even given up. We don't even have time for dinner because we just pick it up on the go because we've got to run someone to carpool and someone to scouts and someone to, you know, to the to to go visit their parole officer, stuff like that. It's not a big deal. It's just it's a little deal. You know, they couldn't even prove it. But we still got to, you know, pay the time. Um, families, do they matter to you? We've been talking about it a lot on the show. And it's one thing, I guess, to say it. It's another thing to find the time to do it. Coming up in this next segment or in the next hour, Susan Newman will be joining us. And she's going to give us the actual tools to create healthier memories, to create more unity and, sol- and togetherness in your family and also how to use your dinner time a little more effectively. But before we do that, let's go to the Uber mom who does it all. And also the news here, Kathy Aiken. An African-American church in South Carolina that was burned down by the Ku Klux Klan 20 years ago caught fire again last night. The Mount Zion AME Church in Greeleyville began burning around 8.30 p.m. No one was believed to be inside the church. Authorities say it's too early to tell if it was arson. Much of the building was destroyed. That's the eighth black church to burn in the last two weeks. David Sweat, who along with Richard Matt escaped from a New York prison, said they began their plot in January. The two men who escaped on June 6th did a dry run the night before they got free. Matt was shot and killed last Friday. Sweat remains in a hospital recovering from two gunshot wounds. The New York State Department of Corrections has put several prison executives, including the superintendent, on leave as they investigate the facility. New Jersey Governor Chris Christie made it official yesterday. America is tired of hand-wringing and indecisiveness and weakness in the Oval Office. We need to have strength and decision-making and authority back in the Oval Office. And that is why today I am proud to announce my candidacy for the Republican nomination for President of the United States of America. Christie made that announcement at Livingston High School, where he once attended. That makes him the 14th GOP contender. Christie said both parties have failed the country and that he's out to change the world. Ohio Governor John Kasich expected to announce his run in a few weeks. 
After Donald Trump's controversial remarks about Mexican immigrants, Mexico announced it won't be sending a contestant to the next Miss Universe pageant. Trump owns part of that event. Univision also announced it won't air the Miss USA pageant this month and the Miss Universe pageant in January. Yesterday, Trump filed a $500 million lawsuit against Univision in response to that decision. The National Safety Council is asking drivers to be careful this 4th of July weekend. On average, there are 37 percent more highway fatalities during this holiday than any other day in July. That's due to more partying and higher levels of traffic. It's estimated that more than 400 people will be killed on U.S. roads during the long Independence Day weekend. And if that holds true, that would be the most for a 4th of July holiday in seven years. That was from last night's Women's World Cup semifinals, where the U.S. shut out Germany 2-0. The U.S. now awaits tonight's other semifinal winner between Japan and England. The final is on Sunday. Hope Solo, by the way, had her fifth straight shutout in the victory. And Matt, have you seen the list of worst and best fast food restaurants? No, but I'm sure I've been to every one of them. And I'm going to quiz you here in a minute. So according to the American Consumer Satisfaction Index, there are the five most loved and hated Hmm. chains. And they were rated in a few different ways, primarily food quality, yep. customer service, speed of delivery, and cleanliness. Okay, okay so go. the worst. Number five, KFC. Really? Four, Burger King. Number huh. three, Taco Bell. <laughs> number two, Jack in the Box. And number one is? Uh, well, it's got to be McDonald's. That's McDonald's. the biggest yep. out there. The one that started the whole fast food business, the number Interesting. one. Interesting. Yeah. They say the millennials are, you know, they want, they're yeah. wanting healthier food, and McDonald's is, is right down there, I guess. Okay, here's the best. Ready? Okay, yeah. Number five, Papa John's mm. pizza. Yeah. I love pizza. Number four, which kind of surprised me, I, I don't, I guess it's fast food, Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, that's, yeah. Have you ever had, have you ever had their roast beef on Never. donuts? No. Oh, it's so good. Really? You that just does cut a donut kind of in kind half. Kind of the salty and the sweet together. Yeah, they actually don't have that, but I'm ask, oh. <laughs> I've asked for it. I, 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 I have don't it go to Dunkin' made. Donuts, so I don't know. Well, I think you just maybe have created something for I them. Totally Way to go! Did. Number three, Panera Bread. Really? I saw one of those in California. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if there's one in Utah. I haven't seen. One I dropped there, my but... kids off there, and then I went over to McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> you went and got the uh, really the uh, fat food. Okay. Mm-hmm. Number two, Chipotle. Really? Mm-hmm. And number one. Here's the here's the clue. What? They have the best billboards. And uh, the Chick-fil-A. Best. Very good. Don't I love, you love their is billboards? Is Chick-fil-A the number one? Chick-fil-A's number one. I love Chick-fil-A. I love Chick-fil-A. Their chicken is just incredible. And their billboards with cows drying on the, the billboard. Those are incredible. Those have got, I'm sure those have won numerous awards. I think that's yeah. the most creative thing out there. I, you know what? My favorite, This people are going to think this is weird. My favorite thing at Chick-fil-A are the fries. They have good fries. Those waffle, they they're just waffle, waffle fries. fries. Yeah. yeah, but they're they're not salty. They're not. They're just big chunks of potato. Big chunks of goodness. You know what? I'm hungry now. Hmm. I need to try the chicken nuggets there. I've never tried that. They're have really you tried good. Uh huh. Yeah. They have. I just had the sandwich. Yeah, they have uh, the ones that aren't like breaded or they're just yeah. great. Grilled and grilled chicken fried. nuggets. Yeah, and I'm I'm betting at a place called Chick Fil A. They're probably it's probably real chicken. I'm pretty sure it's 100% chicken. <laughs> Let's hope so. Otherwise, I had to say McDonald's chicken nuggets. I'm not quite sure what's in those completely. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't think it's 100%. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's 88%. <laughs> and the other 12 is? Don't ask. Don't ask. Okay. You don't want to know. You don't want to spend what? like sausage. You don't know what I would trust. A, I trust a McDonald's chicken nugget over a dino nugget. Have you ever heard of dino nuggets? No. 
Those are my kids love them. You buy them at like Costco. Oh yes, okay. In the box, yeah, the yeah. frozen box. Yeah, okay. I mean, but chicken nugget. It's a nugget from a chicken. A dino <laughs> nugget. What is that? And I think it's weird too, like because my kids always eat the heads off the dino first and yeah. the tail, mm-hmm. and they're just nibbling away <laughs> on the dino legs. That's just weird. <laughs> I don't like. I don't like to see. I don't like to see my food. In the form of the food I'm eating. In the form of an animal shape. Yeah. 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 It's just weird. It's weird. Yeah. In the eye. Awkward stuff. <laughs> Give me sushi any day. That'll be good for oh, me. I love sushi. Hey, by the way, this is the key to life, right? You got to eat. But when you eat, you're going to eat every day. You may as well make it a really important part of your family. And we are going to be talking with a, a, a wonderful researcher. Susan Newman will be joining us who was a former professor from Rutgers University and is the author of 15 books. And she's going to be teaching us about the importance of dinner time with your family, how it actually improves your kids' health. It improves your, your, your connection and your ability to, to work together. It improves their overall academic performance. Family dinner time is essential. We're going to be talking about that along with some other topics about how you create more positive memories with your kids. A lot of good stuff coming up uh, with our guest, Susan Susan Newman. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, when was the last time you sat down with your spouse and all of your kids at the dinner table and just enjoyed a meal together? Family dinner seems to have become something of the past, a vintage idea for black and white TV, perhaps. But what if a family could help your children in all aspects of their life? Just one dinner. What if you could just have a healthy family dinner regularly? You know what? It actually has been proven to improve their li- your children's lives in a lot of ways, not just their dietary and emotional health, but also their vocabulary, their academic performance, and it may even be helping them to prevent risky behaviors. Dr. Susan Newman, a social psychologist who specializes in the issues affecting family life, suggests that eating dinner together as a family is good for health, the brain, the spirit of all of its family members. She joins us right now. Uh, she's an author of many books, and we're honored to have her on the show. Susan Newman, welcome to the show, my friend. Good to be here. This is, this is. It seems like just good old fashioned common sense. I mean, the, you remember the Cunninghams on Happy Days? They'd always have a family dinner. You just got to sit down and have a family dinner. But you're proving and, and finding in the research, it, it does. It does good for all parts of our lives. Yeah, it makes a huge difference, especially for children. And and the problem why we don't have family dinners like we did years ago is that everybody is so overscheduled. You know, the kids have endless activities that, you know, they have practices that go into the dinner hour. They have performances. They have um, dad doesn't get home. Mom doesn't get home from the, from work. Yeah. So uh, family dinner sort of goes by the wayside. Uh, you know, there may be, and there probably is food in everybody's house, but people aren't sitting down around the table and talking. And there have been endless amounts of studies that show 
the more family dinners you have, and ideally there should be four, minimum of four a week. Four family dinners a week. Right. It shows that um, particularly with older children, there is less likelihood that um, one of your children will get into risky behavior, Hmm. um, like drugs and alcohol. It's um, family dinners in many ways um, prevent eating disorders among children. Now, why? Why is it? What is it about the dinner? Is it the dinner or is it just the sociality with the family? What is it? Well, it's it's the dinner. It's the idea that uh, children feel secure. They feel they have someone they can talk to. And they feel that uh, they're a group. It, it brings solidarity to the family. So there's a sense of security and safety that while, yes, it's a dinner, these, all these other things are being built around that dinner. Mm. It really and, is, huh? Because you you're going to have conversation time. You're going to be able to look in your kids' eyes and see what's going and sense what's going on. It's, I mean, yeah, it's, when it's you powerful. Find out, you know, what happened in, during the day with them? You may see a hesitation in your child who doesn't want to talk about something. So after dinner, you go, you know, you get him privately or her privately and say, well, what's up? What went on at school today that you didn't want to talk about? Mm. So that you can, you know, you get a feeling of where um, there might be danger or where there's, you know, a hot spot or something that's bothering your child. And, you know, that all adds to the feeling that I can turn to mom and dad. Yeah. I mean, and but, that's that like that is probably what we're all aching for, right, is to have that connection to to some bigger thing or some bigger unit. Yeah, I mean, that's why relatives are so important. If you have relatives close by, include them occasionally. Uh, grandparents are fabulous. Um, for You know, you may have a teenager who doesn't want to talk to you about something but feels comfortable with their grandparents hmm. and will bring it up with the grandparent. Um, so we really underestimate the value of family dinner. In so many ways. I mean, when you look at little children, young children, um, their vocabularies expand greatly just hearing the conversation between mom and dad. And it doesn't matter if you have one child or five children there. The whole, just the conversation, talking about where you may want to go on vacation, um, you improve your child's self-esteem by asking their opinions. Yeah. And what do they think about? It's also a great time to bring up, um, you know, there's so much celebrity gossip and celebrities are always getting in trouble and doing horrible things. Uh-huh. It's a great time to say, oh, did you see the news about and talk about, you know, I called Justin Bieber um, a parent's helper, really. <laughs> yeah, really. Really, because he gives you so many takeoff points. Yeah. His behavior is so horrible. Content moments, right, where we <laughs> right, could use that you, to teach. You can teach. 
or, you know, on a more depressing level, let's say there's a, a fire mm-hmm. and you ha- in, you know, in, in town somewhere, you have a chance to talk about fire safety. You yeah. say, oh, you know, they had a fire. It was only in the kitchen, but let's talk about what we would and do. And go into all the safety issues you want your child to know yeah. about. You know, using matches, um, putting a fire in the fireplace, um, hot things on the stove, and so forth. Because there are so many um, topics that just come up on the news. Just if you watch the news, my my children, we sat down just yesterday, and they had a lot of questions about stuff that was going on in the news. And... um, and it's just the the deal is that a, that I think makes dinner so important is it's an essential time anyway. I call it it's like a transition point, right, where we know how the dinner goes. We know how long it goes. We know we're going to have it every night or four or five times a week. And so it almost makes it a consistent ritual that we could easily take advantage of if we just prioritized it. That is true. I want to backtrack a second when we're talking about news and things going on in the community, and I use almost all negative examples. Yeah. But it's also a great time to talk about your family values, and you can do that in terms of something that um, some community service project or people who were donating to uh, help MS or a disease. Um, You can talk about, um, oh, you know, this would be a good time to go through your toys and see what we can donate to a shelter or that kind of thing. That's a great idea. It has a positive spin as well as using the negative news. And and you can even take take a situation in the news and, and contrast it to your value system and I love that. It's it's a major teaching moment, and, and you know it's going to happen every night. And so even if nothing big emerges from the dinner, then it's just a good, safe dinner. If something does emerge, it's just a moment to continually check in. And I love the idea, too, of just being able to look in your kids' eyes and kind of take a test of where they are. That's right. You, but you also, I, I don't want to have parents leaving this conversation thinking, I have to do something important yeah, tonight. Yeah, no, no. Just, I mean, it isn't. The, uh, it just happens. Yeah. You know, it, it's spontaneous. Um, you know, your child may be talking about a new toy, or you may be talking about a piece of artwork he brought home, and you can, you know, it's a great way to praise your child. So, uh, you know, gathering around the table is also a good time for building your children's self-esteem. Yeah. You know, if you have a, a second grader or a first grader uh, or kindergarten child who's brought home a picture, you can talk about, you know, ask how they pick their colors or what gave you the idea for that picture. Um, so those are all, mm. you don't want to just say great job, yeah. great picture, but you do want to get your child to express himself. And by asking those questions, he gets the message that, he did a really good job and can be proud of himself. Yeah, that's powerful. You know, same for sporting events. Yeah. How did you, you know, how did you squeeze in there and make that basket? Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. I love it. And and it's a great, just to let them have a voice, a place where they can share their voice. We're talking with Susan Newman. Uh, she's a PhD, a social, social psychologist, written many, many books. She's also a blogger for Psychology Today. 
And we're going to take a break and come back. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, memories and and creating some really good memories with our kids. It it could be something that might be important that we do intentionally, that we we think about the kind of memories we want to create. We're going to have her come back and and teach us uh, about what makes a good memory and, and some skills or tools we could use there as well. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. To the Matt Townsend Show. We are speaking uh, on the phone with Susan Newman. She's a social psychologist who specializes in issues affecting family life. And she uh, suggests the importance of eating dinner as a family. It's good for the health, the brain, the spirit of all the family members. She also, um, she, she's really the author of 15 books. And she has just re, uh, I don't know what you call it, rewritten a book that that talks a little bit about memories and the importance of creating memories. Susan Newman, welcome back to the show. Good to be here. What's the new? What's the book that you rewrote or you re? Yeah, I updated, updated it. It's a new edition of a book called Little Things Long Remembered: hmm. Making Your Children Feel Special Every Day, and um, it really talks completely, thoroughly about making memories and um, why you want to fill your child's memory bank and how you can do it. And it's broken into time frames, Uh what you can do in um, just a gesture, what you can do in a minute more or less, five minutes, half an hour, and then I get into what to do on the weekends. um, Because we don't think about memories, do we? We just kind of, we just kind of, assume they're going to happen by us being with our kids, but you can make memory making an intentional thing. You can make it intentional. Um, I have a set of what I call the cardinal rules at the beginning and the beginning of the book, and one of them is make one little thing the minimum of one little thing a day. Hmm. So, I mean, it can just be um, a hug, a kiss, and an I love you. Yeah. But you do it every day. You, um, some people make it a house rule. You can't leave the house without a hug and a kiss goodbye. That's great. Um, and you can make a, a designer, I call it a designer kiss, and it, it could be a, a peck on each cheek for one child. Hmm. It could be two pecks on the forehead. That's that child's special kiss. Um, That's cool. So, you know, that kind of adds to their feeling important and special. But people get lost in this whole idea of they have to do some extravagant vacation Uh or they have to um, build a treehouse with their child, which is a good thing. I'm not knocking it. But But that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, yeah, and you may not have the time. But what's interesting about memory building is that it's the most offbeat, unusual, sometimes it's a mishap, a misadventure that becomes the memory. Yeah. 
And it's not the big splashy vacation. <laughs> right. But it's the time your kids decided to make a birthday cake by themselves and the icing, instead of they wanted pink or purple, it was brown. <laughs> and so they never forget the brown icing. Yeah. In fact, uh, you know, we that, had one of those moments on Thanksgiving. We A few years ago, we went out of town and we didn't plan. We didn't really know that every business in the world shuts down on Thanksgiving. <laughs> So we just thought we'd go to dinner. We ended up going a little later than we thought. And when we got to this restaurant, it was closed. And then we went to every other restaurant. They were all closed. Everything was closed except like an IHOP. And we had Thanksgiving dinner at an IHOP. And everyone in my family ate something different. So somebody had a hamburger and somebody had – and nobody had turkey. I I think actually my wife may have had turkey. And it be, it's now become an incredible memory that we could laugh about, yet it was a mistake. Right. I mean, that's, that's a great example of what I'm talking about. You just never know what silly thing, or that wasn't so silly. Yeah, but, but just but, kind of, yeah, weird, out yeah. of the blue thing. Yeah, well, that happened to us once. We were somewhere, and there was no turkey to be had. <laughs> so we said, okay, we'll have cranberry and cheese sandwiches that's as close as that's we as can close get as you're getting and that's the memory in our family yeah i mean it really the memory is that's that's what's going to make the legacy right it's to have lived and not be remembered maybe we didn't live that is true i mean but it's simple things yeah like you can call the kitchen counter in your house the diner and then everybody you know, gathers around and um, you take pretend orders because mm-hmm. I do not recommend cooking <laughs> different things for right. all the different people in your house. Yeah. Let but, them order whatever they want, but everyone's yeah, getting so the kid, roast yeah, beef. Or you could turn on music before or after dinner and spend two minutes just dancing around. Yeah. And so that becomes, oh, I remember that. Um, you just any little quirky thing you do, and there's 500 ideas in this book. More Is there than really? 500 That's great. Ideas. Um, for young children who are just starting school, you can take take a certain area of the house and call it the study hall. It could be um, the kitchen table. It could be a room in the den. It could be. Um, their, you know, in their bedroom at a desk. Yeah. But by naming it, it gets remembered. No, it's so true. And so I guess part of this key is keep it simple and then repeat it regularly. Yeah, repetition is definitely the key because if you do it over and over, it, it gets embedded. But, um, you know, you can make your children call them assistant to the chef. Yeah. Or going back to your example of Thanksgiving, where you really are home having Thanksgiving, you can make one child the mashed potato queen. <laughs> so every year she gets to mash the potatoes if that's what yeah. you're having. Or somebody can be the salad person and mm-hmm. you give her a fancy name. Um, all those things that you do each year um, become stored in their minds as um, a little thing long remembered. And how powerful is that? And that becomes that's that memory is going to last forever, and and it becomes kind of a building block for their identity, for their place in this family. 
And the interesting part is um, I know uh, my daughters repeat what we did Mm -hmm. with their children. So you're not only building their memory bank, but you're passing on traditions. Uh, You know, it could be the tradition that you always have a lemon pie Mm. for Thanksgiving or for Christmas, whatever holiday you're celebrating. Um, It could be that um, as your children get older, you put them in charge of dinner one night. Yeah. this uh, Tuesday night is Lindsay's night. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, and you get help from the kids, but they feel that they're in charge. It really is. It's. It's just. It seems again, Susan, so very basic, and and I, I think you keep alluding to this idea that we we've, we've got to keep it simple because as humans, it's, it seems like we just tend to over. Do it. We think if well, if we're going to do a little, you know, memory here and a little ritual, we may as well make it big, and we we kind of pack a lot in. But you're just saying repetition, keep it simple, and yeah, uh, and, and make the people the priority. Yeah, and you don't. I mean, to do any of these things I'm talking about and that are in the book, you don't have to spend money. Right. You know, it's just sit down with your child, and you could draw together. You could have what I call a chit-chat, and every night when you tuck your child in, you start a little discussion. But as I said before, by labeling things, they really stick, so you call it chit-chat. Yeah. And I know my niece and her mother are actually the ones who started that, uh-huh. and my niece is now grown and a parent of by herself, mm-hmm. and uh, she still calls her mother and says, Mom, could we have a chit-chat? Oh, that's Something cool. Something I need to discuss. Yeah, and, and it creates that connection back to all those memories. Powerful stuff. Uh, Susan, we appreciate you and, and the great book. Go, go check out that book, folks, Little Things Long Remembered, Making Your Children Feel Safe uh, or Feel Special Every Day, and then also remember the power of the dinner ritual four times uh, a week. We need to have at least four of those dinner rituals a week. And also go to Susan's website, SusanNewmanPhD.com. SusanNewmanPhD.com. So many wonderful blog articles there with tons of ideas to learn from. It's cool. You know, families, they matter, folks, and it's the little things that make the difference. We're going to take a break, come back, and then go visit our good buddies down in Studio B at BYU Sports Nation. See who Spencer's going to be working with today. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little pentatonics for you. That definitely will get Spencer's toe a-tapping. We're going to shoot it down now to our good buddies down in Studio B, BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, uh, do you know who the Hello. original is by, that song? No. Do you know Michael? No. It is Pharrell, along with Daft Punk. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. The su- the subject matter is a bit questionable. Yeah, no, right there was a little <laughs> that was a little interesting timing there. Hey, um changing the subject matter. Hey, you know what's really interesting? I found a story that uh that just reminded me of you, Spencer, for some reason. Uh oh. 
Did you know that each day $7 million worth of phones go missing worldwide? $7 million worth. Two-thirds of phone loss happens between 9 p.m. and 2 a.m. When did you lose your phone? It was uh, 10, 27 p.m. There you go. Local bing, time bing, in Miami. Bing, bing, bing. See? You're a stat. Uh, U.S. cities most likely to lose their phone. You're most likely to use your, your phone, lose your phone in is Philadelphia, number one, Seattle, number two, Oakland, Long Beach, and Newark. Wow. Not Miami. Uh, so very rarely do people lose their phone in Miami. Oh, my goodness. I guarantee it's probably like number six. <laughs> it probably is. <laughs> According to the results of the new report, uh, the U.S., uh, has found that around $30 billion worth of mobile phones were lost in 2011. That's the last report. One reason why losing your smartphone is so risky is because, according to Symantec, a mobile security provider, more than 95% of the time, people who lost their smartphones, the people who stole the, who received the phones, try to access your sensitive data. Holy cow. Well, that's why I'm thankful for uh, the technology that's involved, at least with my phone, where I could just click a button and yeah. like it went into lost mode. Shut it down. I could, I could, you can delete your entire you phone yeah. through a remote connection. You know, I hear that uh, Apple's coming out with a, a version where instead of deleting it, you can actually just blow up your phone. <laughs> <laughs> you just push a button this and you blow it up. Self-obstruct. This yeah, phone will self-destruct, self-destruct in 11 seconds. It gives, it gives like six beeps and then it explodes. <laughs> How it's cool powerful. would that be? Like, even if it wasn't like a major explosion, but yeah. like if it just like smoked or, and melted from or, the inside, or just electrocuted, or even just said that and didn't even do anything but just scared the guy. This phone will explode in three Your seconds. Your mission, if you choose to accept, is to return this phone to its original user. <laughs> just chucking things away. It's oh, no. so yeah, sad. Let's so get going, sad. Apple. Let's get moving on. That. You know, I, I don't know. They say it's in beta testing. <laughs> they, they're trying to get the explosive level just right. How would you like to have the beta test? I'm going to invest in that. Hey, we want you to carry this around. Can you hold this uh, phone? <laughs> when you hear it beep, um, just cover your eyes. <laughs> That's all we want you to do. Hey, here's another crazy little phone stat. Do you guys uh, sleep with your phones? Uh, well, what do you mean? Do we sleep with like, them like next, next to, to them? It? Well, because I heard, I heard, Michael, that you actually put your phone on your pillow next to your head. And then you just talk with it at night. What? No, that's I, what. You, no, you're. I've fallen asleep. Like no, no, no. We've heard. No, your wife called. She called in and said that's the problem. Um, here's what we've found in some latest research. <laughs> Apparently, a large majority of respondents, seventy-one percent, say they usually sleep with or next to their mobile phone. Three percent of those people said they sleep with the device in their hand. Thirteen percent said they keep wow. it on the bed. Fifty-five percent say they leave it on the nightstand. Yeah, I'm a nightstand guy. One in four said that at one time or another, they've fallen asleep with their smartphone in their hand, which I've done many it's times. Yeah, I've yeah. done that. Yep. In fact, I've done like three times I've done it while driving, which is wow. totally messed up. Falling Thir- asleep with it in your phone and driving? Uh-huh. Seriously weird. <laughs> uh, boy, did I get in trouble, like by the way. We don't even have time for that story. 35% <laughs> of respondents said their smartphone is the first thing they reach for when they wake up. Well, isn't that because the alarm's going yeah, off? Exactly. Well, maybe, but 99% of spouses say that ticks them off. <laughs> you ought to reach for your spouse. The alarm's going off. Mm-hmm. Trying to help your wife so you don't wake her up. 37% of respondents said they text during meals. 32% admitted texting mid-conversation. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I'm texting as I'm even giving you those stats. Yeah, I'm looking at my Twitter update right yeah. now, my Twitter feed. Spence has his phone out right now. I put mine face down. I respect That is guys. Michael, you're so respectful. Yeah. Seriously. They call us generation. I'm telling you, y. I'm telling you, the lesson <laughs> we learned in Miami when I was on vacation and we both got our phones stolen. I know this is a cool lesson. Was that 
you know what? There is much life to be lived outside of looking at your five inch or six inch screen. <laughs> yes. Like, seriously, like it was amazing. After like the second day, I was like, wow, this is well, Miami's beautiful and the sky is amazing. Holy and cow, there's life, water. I, I can converse with my wife about anything and everything. And yeah. Like, yeah, it was cool. See, so that's, we have no phones time. I think that's beautiful. It's a good moment. Will you call my Will you call my kids and teach them that lesson? Are they Are they sucked into the vortex? The totally, black hole? they're in the hole. Is Is there anything worse than your phone dying, like in the middle of the day? Well, yeah, Michael, <laughs> your your wife dying. Okay. That's up there. Yeah, but I don't have a wife, so for me, your kids, the worst your neighbors, imagine your is parents. My phone dying. <laughs> you need a wife, Michael. I do. You need, I do. Yeah, man, I got so many women. That? I've got I've got it. I've got Thanks. it done. Uh, it. Let's just plan next week. We'll get you married. Okay, let's do it. This one's great. Are you guys going to do your show today? Well, we thought about it, and we decided that, you know what, we're, we're going to go ahead and do it again. Okay, let's throw out one more. Yeah, we deliberated for a while and thought, <laughs> oh, okay. You yeah, we're going to do it, and we're going to do it big, as usual. Of course. What else? We are discussing the Big 12 yet again, but uh-huh. it's, not, it's not the feature topic today. Here's, oh. our, t- here's our Twitter question, yeah. Matt, and you can chime in this on, yeah. on Twitter. I, this is your assignment. You need okay. to do this. Okay, okay, I'll do it. What's the biggest win for BYU football in its independence era? So in the last four mm. years, they've played 52 games. Mm-hmm. What's the biggest win for BYU in independence? Yeah, that's easy. That, is it? Yeah, that's Texas. Okay, which one? In the, in the opening of that stadium, the first year, wasn't it? Well, well, I... 2013. Was that it? Was that, in the, when that, was that the one? Well, wait, yeah. there's one at Lavelle Stadium in 2013. No, no. No. Well, that was cool. But, no, I think it was at the Texas Stadium. Okay, oh, so okay, at, okay. in Austin, you're going with yeah. the road game. Well, yeah, but I guess that they weren't that great of a team that year, though. Hmm. They were a better team the year before. Yeah. See, this is an intriguing debate. This is why it's a good debate. That's the easy answer, but we're getting all sorts of good answers, and everyone has a different, like, you know, reasoning, obviously, uh-huh. because of the emotional investment they had in that specific game. Yes. So this See? is— this is a good discussion. It's a great discussion. Also, we have ESPN Big 12 blogger, a guy who wrote an article yesterday uh, entitled, uh, it, essentially saying, it is not if the Big 12 will expand, but when Ooh. they will expand. It's inevitable, is what he says. He's on the show today. Excellent. Staff writer for ESPN. Uh, it's it's going to happen. about what is going to happen, when it's going to happen, and how BYU fits into that picture, if at all. Oh, man. Okay. I'm listening. Yes. I'm going to start listening to your show today. <laughs> What's taking you so long? <laughs> no, I listen to it every day. I try to turn it on in my office, but my office is just, it's like a beehive. It's like a frozen beehive. Why a frozen, frozen beehive? Yeah, it's yeah. weird. Um, it's, I just cold? have, I think all of the air conditioning from the building pumps into my office. I think I actually <laughs> just live in a vent. It's a big vent room. And so I'm always a little cold in there, but it's a hive of, of excitement, and everyone's there because I always put out some candy. Ah, uh, huh. So I'm going to well, take the candy away, and I'm going sugar, to watch your sh- listen to your show and watch your show. Listen, just put on your pink snuggie. I've seen it. Have you seen it? You're. All, it's all good. Man. Oh, I love it. It's so cozy. So Lay cozy. Down. <laughs> Make sure you got your phone in your hand. Take I do. Out. It could be totally. worse. Your phone could be dead. That's such a good your point. Hello, Michael. kitty snuggie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't. That's my secret, dude. <laughs> I thought that was private. Anyway, guys, have a great show. That's going to be a good one. We're looking forward you to it. You know what? If I were you guys, I'd do your show every day, Monday we're, through Friday. Yeah, we're, we're uh, pushing that direction. 12 Eastern. I'd do it. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, boys. No more boys. phones. No Bye. more phones. Take care, guys. Thanks. Hey, everybody, listen to that show. That, they're, they're the bomb. They really are. And 
with Michael there, anybody that wants to marry or date Michael, give us a call, one eight five five chat byu Michael Elisa. He's got a, I don't know if he's got stubble today. I, I didn't get a chance to see, but he's the real deal. Spencer's already married, but, you know, so don't be calling for Spencer. Hey, um, we always like to end the show on a hero note, right? Here's our hero today. Our hero is a British tourist that takes a bullet to protect his fiance. This guy, unbelievable. While traveling through Tunisia, one man's love and courage saved the life of his fiance when ISIS forces opened fire on vacationers there. Matthew James and Sarah Wilson were vacationing together and touring Tunisia when the most unexpected turn of events took place. The soon-to-be bride and groom left their children back in UK while they took a trip together before the big day. One morning, while hanging out together, the couple heard gunfire and saw a panic take over. They soon realized that the guns were firing and the chaos made it impossible to determine where the shots were coming from. The couple began to ran, but Matthew soon realized that the life of his fiance and mother of his children was in danger. In Sarah's words, I only saw the man in dark clothing. Matthew put himself in front of me and then he was hit. He moved, and the man shot him. And shielding her from danger, Matthew left his future wife with the dying message, tell our kids that dad loves them. He then told her to run and hide until it was all over. After the chaos subsided, Sarah said she had no idea where her fiancé was, and after about two hours of searching, someone handed her a phone, and on the other end, she heard Matthew's voice. She then knew that he was alive. ISIS had taken the responsibility for the attack. One gunman was shot and killed, another arrested. All in all, 38 people were killed. This couple considers themselves the luckiest people alive. Matthew James is now being hailed as a hero. The couple is set to be wed in September of 2017. What a stud. That's pretty darn cool. Again, uh, Matthew James, you're the hero of the day on The Matt Townsend Show. You don't have very much time, right, to just protect someone? And he immediately just jumped in front of her and protected her, taking a shot. We've heard two or three stories, moms doing this, people doing this. You know, he's not a cop. He's not a special forces guy. He's not secret service for the president. He's just a man that's in love with his soon-to-be wife and mother of his children. Folks, you all have the hero in you. That's one of the main goals of this show is to always remind you that inside of each of us, there is something divine. There's something good. And we want to help you unleash that power. So stick with us, folks. Join us again Monday through Friday, 9 to noon Eastern time. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You can find find us on TuneIn or iTunes. Go listen to us and uh, and pass pass on this message that there's good in the world. And until tomorrow, we'll be back again. Take care and make it a good one.